0: We're in the Gospel of John, we've moved to chapter 13, we're about halfway through the chapter, verse 31. When he had gone out, Jesus said, now is the Son of Man glorified and God is glorified in him. If God is glorified in him, God will also glorify him in himself and glorify him at once. Little children, yet a little while I am with you. You will seek me, and just as I said to the Jews, so now I will say to you, where I am going, you cannot come. A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another just as I have loved you. You also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. The word of the Lord. You may be seated. The strongest, most powerful, emotive force in the cosmos is love. And not just a generic love, but a specific love. In order to have love you must have a person. It is something that a person must do. And God almighty the father, son and the holy spirit love. They love one another with a mutual and intersecting love and Out of love, they created God Almighty. One God created. And the crown of the creation was a person. From the clay of the earth that he had made, God brought forth the human. The Bible says that God made the human human. In his own image. What's called the communicable attributes of God. That is those attributes of God that can be communicated to the creation. The supreme one is love. A capacity to love. But love was not only the great emotive force that moved God to creation. But when the human had fallen into the deepest sin, had rebelled against God, had disobeyed and committed that fatal act, It was again the emotive force of God that moved him to redemption. To redeem the human and to restore the creation to its glory and its splendor. And that's really what the Lord now is doing. He is going to restore the glory of God in the human and in the creation by a redemptive act. He is going to offer up himself as the sacrifice that satisfies the penalty of the human's sin. God is never more glorified anywhere than in the death of Jesus Christ. Listen to how the Bible describes this in a couple of places. But God commendeth his love toward us. That word translated commended or is the word pageant. God set forth a pageant, a demonstration. Calvin calls it a theater, a stage, a place where all eyes from all eternity could focus upon a scene and a script. God commendeth his love toward us in that he created many, many more universes in that he redeemed this one. God commended, he pageanted his love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Hear the pageant theme of love. For God so loved the world. Loved the world such that He gave His only begotten Son that whosoever believes in Him should not perish but have everlasting life. Herein is love. Not that we love God but that He loved us and gave His Son To be the propitiation for our sins. Interesting the word propitiation is used there. To propitiate is to appease the wrath of God. You say, the strongest emotive force in the cosmos is love. What about God's wrath? It's powerful. Oh yes it is. But it is simply a utility to enforce the great love of God. It is God's wrath that must eradicate all that that is against God. It is God's wrath that must punish and move aside and destroy all of those who do not love God and are not the objects of His love. It is God's wrath that seeks to purge and to cleanse and to rid the cosmos of all of those things that are out of sync with His will and that are opposed to Him. All the vile abominations, all the filth, all the perversions, God's wrath must be summoned in order that it might scourge all of those things that impede and cloud and oppose His great love for us. Jesus knew that love intimately with the Father and the Spirit from all eternity. Remember very early in John, we talked about how Jesus was with God. He was in the bosom of the Father. He dwelled there in triune splendor. And he had seen in his personal experience as the active agent in creation with the Spirit of God blowing forth and God giving the Word, the Logos, the wisdom to create everything. And now Jesus knows that his mission is moving. We have now passed, rather quickly, in the Gospel of John from the book of signs, that is the first 12 chapters that lay out the signs and the discourses, into the book of glory. That's where Raymond Brown, the great Bible expositor, divides the Gospel of John. The book of signs and the book of glory. We are now in the book of glory. The book of glory is the hour of Jesus Christ's glory. It will ironically be that hour in which He will be mocked and stripped and scourged. It is that hour in which He will be beaten and bloody. It is that hour in which He will be falsely accused and wrongly convicted and abominably punished. It is that hour in a sense in which the darkness of the fallen world will have its most dense dank moment. But that's the hour that the glory of God will shine at its brightest. The very phrase before we begin our text is there in verse 30. It says, and after receiving the morsel of bread, he immediately went out and it was night. That's Judas. If Christ is coming to express the immeasurable, infinite love of God toward his own, it was Judas that had the most treacherous act of hatred, betrayal. In the story there, we've, we've moved forward and we've moved past the gathering of Jesus with his disciples on that Thursday night to celebrate the Passover, that night in which he was betrayed, that we speak of when we come to the Lord's table. That that hour now is coming. And they had reclined for the meal. Jesus had not instituted the Lord's Supper yet. We'll speak of that in just a moment. But they had been eating and the Lord himself had given a sop to Judas as an indicator to John and Peter of who was going to betray him. No one suspected Judas. Christ's treatment of Judas throughout his entire life was the same as it was the others. He loved them to the end. He had called Judas. Judas. He had trained Judas. He had given Judas a special office. He had not withheld one measure of grace, not one moment of his teaching, not one bit of his tender care. But Judas had allowed himself to become the vehicle, the vessel of Satan's work. If you study the drama of the betrayal, you'll see that first... Judas thought of the idea out of his own emotions and turning upon Christ. But then there's a phrase in there in the Gospels which said that Satan entered into his mind. He put into his mind to betray Jesus and to plot with the chief priest to crucify Christ. But then the climax of it all, it says that Satan entered Judas. This is the serpent at work trying to hold on to that which he had done in the garden when he had tempted and impelled and moved and led the cheers for the fallen pair to do what they did. And now Satan knew that his work was about to be undone. He had managed to bring Race into ruin. And he knew now Christ was going to redeem the race, restore the race. So now we're into that great conflict where there's going to be a crushing of a heel. And then that crushed heel will crush the head of the serpent. That will happen within hours, within hours. And this is Judas that goes out. And when Judas leaves the room, Jesus knew now that the trigger had been pulled. We're on our way to the outward suffering of Christ in the bringing about. He's already said how sorrowful he is. He's already told him how his spirit is deeply troubled. He's an indication in verse 21 of the dread that he has of the betrayal. I don't know if I would have even needed to go to a cross to suffer. I don't even know if I would have needed to be beaten to suffer. It would have killed me to watch somebody betray me like that. That would crush my soul. That would bring me to tears. That would be the one thing that would probably hurt me worse than anything. But Christ knew that when Judas went out, And he looked at him and said, what you're going to do, do it deliberately. Do it quickly. Do it immediately. Because the hour had come for Jesus to be glorified. Listen to this language. It's so interesting. Now is the Son of Man glorified. When Judas walked out of that door and that screen door slammed shut, that was the time when Jesus knew the moment was here, the hour was. Of his suffering. Now is the son of man glorified. And God will be glorified in him. There will be no greater glory. That God almighty will receive. than he will receive. The next. Few hours. When the son of God. Will suffer the most. Awful. Ignominious indignities. Of humanity. In order that he might redeem that humanity. God is love. And it was love that put him there. And He was going to be glorified in this great love. And notice the inter-action. God is glorified in him. God will glorify him in himself and will glorify him at once. Jesus knew that the events were just Right upon him. His trial. His betrayal. His trial. His crucifixion. His suffering. His death. His burial. His resurrection. Sown in weakness. Raised in power. He was going to go from the depths of his humiliation. To the heights of his exaltation. And he was going to do it on Passover day. As you know, most of you know, if you've studied your Bible, that the reckoning of the scripture of a day is the evening and the morning are the day. And so it was the evening that the betrayal was taking place and it was in the morning and the next day until sundown that we're in the period of the Sabbath. I mean the, uh, the Passover, the sacrificial time. Then the Sabbath would fall Jesus would rest in the tomb on the Sabbath. and Then he would be raised at the very first blinks of daylight upon the third day, Sunday. This was the glory. This was the plan from all eternity. The Bible tells us that Christ was a lamb crucified from the foundations of the world. This was God's cosmic plan all along to redeem his people. And now Jesus is in that moment. And he sort of sets up the immediate thing, and I won't go into too much detail, because Jesus said, just like I told the Jews, and we talked about it there, he says, where I'm going, you cannot come. You'll look for me, but you won't find me. Jesus knew that He was going to depart. He knew He was going to go into the depths of the earth. He knew He was going to go into the pit. He was going into the abyss. He was going into hell for His people taking that punishment that they deserved. And they were not going to follow Him there. As it were, there's a sense in which the poor disciples from the time of the the Last Supper until the time that they came to the tomb on the the break of day three days later there was a sense in which they were just kind of out of it. They scattered, they fled, they were confused, they they didn't know what was going on. And while they were in their worst condition emotionally and mentally, couldn't think it through, couldn't sort it out, couldn't understand it, didn't really know what was happening, while they were in their worst moment of their emotional, intellectual and spiritual life, Jesus was performing a work on their behalf and accomplishing something that they could never accomplish themselves. And I'm telling you, if you look at the mental state and the emotional and spiritual state of the disciples between the foot washing of the Last Supper and the moment that they began to see the empty tomb and begin to see Jesus alive, study what went on during that period of time. And that's where we are. That's where we live our spiritual lives. Clueless. (laughs) Unaware. Fretful. Full of anxiety, doubts, fears. Willing to not betray the Lord, as Judas said, but uh, did, but as Peter said, I go fishing. I'm going to go back to what I'm doing. I just this this whole notion of being with the Lord evidently has come to a truncated end, and it was not as I thought, and I've got to sort this out. And so, there they were. But Jesus was going to be doing exactly what needs to be done on their behalf. In his death, he's going to be bearing the curse for him, and in his life, his resurrection, he's going to be bringing them eternal life. Now, quickly let me say that this If you you check this out, we know this is the Passover. We know this is where Jesus instituted what we know as the Last Supper, the communion of the Lord, the Eucharist, the Lord's Supper. But there's also a texture to this that sometimes is missed when we think about it, and that is this is a covenant meal. You remember back in the Old Testament, Moses on one occasion took the elders, a select group of elders of Israel with him, and he had a meal there at the foot of Mount Sinai where they had a covenant meal and there was blood splattered and there was things that happened. There was a ceremony, a very elaborate ceremony. And this came just at the time of the giving of the commandments. So now we have Jesus with His chosen men with Him, with the blood of the covenant being represented by the wine and Him saying it that way. And then at the covenant meal, there are commandments given. And Jesus simplifies it to one. He says, a new commandment I give to you that you love one another. Just as I have loved you, you are to love one another. If Jesus had said love one another, they would have had a good background. The Old Testament is filled and I'll read a few of them if I can find them here pretty quickly. I think I can. Listen to some of the things that any good Jew in Jesus' day would have understood. And now Israel, what does the Lord your God require of you but to fear your God, to walk in his ways, to love him with all your heart and with all your souls, to keep the commandments and statutes which I, the Lord, am giving you today for your good? You shall therefore love the Lord your God, keep his charge, his statutes, his rules, and his commandments Always, if you will indeed obey my commandments that I command you today, to love the Lord your God and to serve him with all your heart and with all your soul. For if you will be careful to do all this commandment that I command you to do, loving the Lord your God, walking in all his ways and holding fast to him. They understood the primacy of love. The great commandment was to love the Lord and then to love the neighbor as yourself. So in what sense is Jesus giving a new commandment? He's given a new commandment in the sense that all of the commandments are new, in the sense that the testament is new, in the sense that the covenant is new. It is based upon every foundation of the old covenant that God made with his people through Moses, the mediator. But now Jesus, the new Moses, is bringing about the fulfillment of all of that, the coming of his spirit, The accomplishment of the work. No longer do we have to look for the atonement in the signs and the killing of the the lambs and the bulls and the goats and the turtle doves and all of the things that pointed. Now we have the full manifestation of it. And we also have the full manifestation of the commandments. And the commandments are summed in one great commandment, and that is to love the Lord and to love one another. And Jesus has already given them an example. He said, you love one another like I loved you. If Jesus wasn't pretty sure that he had loved them thoroughly, completely all those years and everything that he had done had been in a loving manner and in a loving way, all the rebukes, all the teaching, all the tutoring, all of the things that they had gone through, Jesus had been a walking example of manifestation of that love of God. And so he tells them to take his example and to do that with one another. And he says, this will Be the way that people will know that you are my disciples. If you have love for one another. Let love be genuine, Paul says. Abhor what is evil, hold fast to that it is good. Love one another with brotherly affection. Owe no one anything except to love each other, for the one who loves another has fulfilled the law. The commandments, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not cover it, and any other commandment are summed up by this word, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no wrong to a neighbor, therefore love is fulfilling the law. Love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice in wrongdoing. Love rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things. Love believes all things. Hopes all things. Endures all things. Love never ends. So now faith, hope, and love abide, these three, but the greatest of these is love. Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God, and whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God, because God is love. God is love. We've all heard it. The testimony of Tertullian, the early church apologist, quoting the heathen. When they look at God's people, they say, See how they love one another.